0: Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello Rebels, and welcome to episode 148 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Ryan Cahill all about how to write epic fantasy. But first, to last week's question, which was, what kind of research do you do for your books? back said, for research, uh, I write thrillers that touch on social issues. So I read biographies, watch documentaries, speak to survivors, experts, families, etc. My next series will probably involve PTSD. I'm attending a talk by a retired soldier next month and will be reaching out to others. I will also attempt to avoid Uh, cliches. I'm working on a more comedic thriller in which I'm deliberately finding 1980s Canadian cliches to include. I've learned a, uh, a lot about different beers. I love that. Okay so Ian Worrell said I have had former police officers as supervisors, so use them for technical advice. One was a gun enthusiast, so I was able to use that. If there is something I need to check, I will either do the old Google research and or find someone with the knowledge to ask. Karen Heenan said, all the research, historical writers haven't abandoned you, Sasha. (laughs) Good. I love historical writers. (laughs) just to be clear I know I don't really read a huge amount of historical fiction I do try I keep trying so it's not that I don't I, I haven't sworn it all off I am just waiting for the one uh, that will bring me joy I've got another one in my pile to read funnily enough so uh yeah uh Sasha I've got three shelves of books for my Tudor time period oh my goodness me that's amazing and a long list of bookmarked uh do's on my uh, computer but I love Lon- my, I love my London in the time of the Tudors map oh that's so cool wait we can get maps of what London used to be like in the like in different times I might need to message you about that (laughs) which notes things like pubs markets etc we stretch out together on the living room floor while I plan I want one from the Victorian era how do I get that if you know how to get that please tell me because literally I will love you forever Okay so we also had comments from Jackson Hollingsworth, uh, Wordarella, and uh, yeah so thank you to everybody who uh, commented. This week's question is do you struggle to understand your genre or what the reader wants? If so, The book recommendation of the week this week is going to help because, of course, (laughs) the book recommendation, and you guys know I don't do this very often, but it is my brand new book, The Anatomy of a Bestseller. So yes, all right, okay, fine. It's a cheeky question of the week this week, but what am I going to do? It's my podcast. So the book of the week this week is the anatomy of a bestseller three steps to deconstruct winning books and teach yourself craft at the time of recording the book is going to be uh, published tomorrow i think the likelihood is <laughs> because i can't bear the thought of missing the day i probably will have put it early uh put it up early so uh if you're sneaky you may be able to find it today However, I'm going to the 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 official launch is tomorrow, the twenty eighth of July. Although as this airs live, it will be Wednesday, the twenty seventh of July. And today it's the twenty first of July. (laughs) So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the book uh, by reading you the blurb. Do you wish you could write like your favourite authors? Do you want to improve your writing? If you want to power up your stories, write with your readers in mind and deliver what the market wants. This book is for you. In the anatomy of a bestseller, you'll discover a step-by-step guide to deconstructing your favourite books so you can utilise the tools of winning authors. Tips and tricks for breaking down everything from sentence-level prose to plot pacing, characters, story arcs, and more. Comprehensive guide to understanding your market and what readers want. Tactics for turning the lessons and tools you find into practical prose and stories. The Anatomy of a Bestseller is a comprehensive guide that will help you break down the best books in your genre, understand how and why they work, and then learn how to do it yourself. By the end of the book, you'll be armed with the methods you need to deconstruct those bestsellers, understand the tools those authors are using, and how to implement them in your own work. If you like dark humour and learning through examples, then you'll love Sasha Black's Guide to Deconstructing Winning Books. Read The Anatomy of a Bestseller tomorrow and start writing your bestseller. If you like the sound of that, as I have said, you can probably find it on all of the stores today, uh, like Secrets, uh, but I will be releasing it officially tomorrow and all of the links will be in the show notes. The show notes will be updated just in case it's not live, but I'm sure it is. Uh, And next week, I will have a surprise uh, episode where someone else is going to be taking over the interviewing for me and I will be the guest. Uh, And we will be talking all about the anatomy of a bestseller and diving into the detail uh, to give you guys a, a kind of sneak look at it. So in personal news, of course, I have been, uh, you know, prepping for the launch and doing all of the things to make sure that the book is in as good of a condition as possible. I have also, surprises, been recording the audiobook. I know, (laughs) I know I did not get the last audiobook out on time and I I chose the first book, but I decided, fresh start, I would try and get this audiobook done um, as soon as possible. So I am uh, on the, I am, trying to get this book recorded, edited, and mastered before I go to South Africa. Um, and that means it should be live at some point in August, I would say. So very soon after the launch, I uh, that is all things bearing being well, which they, they should be. I am really plowing through recording this audiobook, and it has gone so much faster and better than the first one which is really encouraging actually. And it means that I will very likely get my ass back in the booth when I am back from South Africa to uh, get the rest of my backlist of books uh, narrated as well. So I have booked in with the masterer, the, the guy who will do the audio mastering. Um, and I when, that, when I talk about that on the show, I will leave the links in the show notes to his services as well. Um, but yes, I'm very excited. My aim is has always been to get this audiobook done uh, and out as close to the launch as possible. I don't know what the ACX times like are at the moment. Uh, I will uh, put the audiobook wide, but I just wanted to let you guys know that that was coming as well. So what else have I been up to? Well, <laughs> mostly, mostly sweating in the fucking hot box. That is my audio booth. Um, but I have also been planning my new series. I have taken the decision drum roll please, I have taken the decision to publish under a pen name. I know, controversial. I haven't ever really wanted to do that because I just couldn't be bothered with the admin that came with having to have separate everything. But what I've decided is that I really want a fresh start. And so the only way to do that is to go under a pen name, which is going to remain secret for now. And, um, It is a slightly different genre. I'm also not going to talk about the genre (laughs) because, uh, well, I basically had a bit of a, a, a spiral last week. I wasn't really sure what I was doing. And then one of my good friends, Chris, asked me where I wanted to be in five years. And then I was like, oh... And at that point, I was like, okay, if that's where I want to be, then that is what I have to make progress doing. So I'm treating this as a bit of an experiment, I suppose. I am going to try and keep the pen name as secret as possible. I am going to, yeah, do what I can, see what happens. It will be written to reader which is a term that i use in the anatomy of a bestseller i don't like the word written to market uh, but it is written to reader and uh so yeah i will see how this experiment goes and if it pays off i'm sure i will tell you all about it <laughs> and if it doesn't then there's no egg on my face right so <laughs> i'm just protecting my fragile fucking ego at this point no i'm not yeah, that is part of it but no um I just wanted to write pressure free without anybody watching Um, and so yeah that is what I'm gonna do and like I said I do promise that if it goes well I will share all of the things that I learn and you know all of the marketing and everything that goes well so yeah that that I've made that decision so I have been looking at brand and um been looking at logos and branding and marketing plans and tropes. And I have been like, I've basically got a five book series I'm looking at, and I'm hoping to rapidly release that. And so I've basically I'm baking the marketing into this. And um, so I'm looking at this from a very competition standpoint, like competition with a big C in terms of Clifton strengths. I'm looking at uh, writing a marketing plan before I even start writing the book. Uh, yeah so this is this is like a really big huge experiment and I definitely will update you guys in terms of other things I've been doing yeah just the launch I'm at Becca Syme's uh, conference so she does a conference every year um, in the Better Faster Academy so I have been doing that and I think that's it yeah audiobook launch Becca's conference and like outlining and You know, sorting out a new pen name and all of the rest of it. So yeah, quite a lot of gossip this week, guys. RMJ. Okay, so rebel of the week this week is Sarah Flandorfer, and I hope I said that correctly. Sarah said. I went to school for photography. I love it, and still do quite a bit of it. Portraiture is my jam for its ability to tell stories. Gee, I wonder why I love it so much. Anyway, I studied briefly, and I do mean briefly, at a school in Florida. I had this horrible studio teacher who was so condescending to everyone. This was a sort of guy who once sat in front of us, um, who once sat in front of us all while discussing portrait techniques and body shamed Adele. Oh. My God. Oh, my God. Instant rage. <sighs> he didn't like a photo of her, not because of the technical execution, but because he didn't find her physically attractive. What the... F- oh, my... Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm literally spitting poison at this point. He would also often give better grades to the people who submitted mo- photos. <gasps> Of women in more revealing clothes. Oh my God, I literally don't know if I can get through this story. Okay, get a grip, Sasha. We were given an assignment to do product photography. Being who he was, he pressed the idea that we had to do everything with gobs of equipment in a professional setting. Well, that's not how I roll. I already had my associate's degree in photography and I had learned in a good old community college that you don't always need fancy shit to get high quality work a fucking man. Uh, or, or should I say a fucking woman? I didn't feel like trying to book a spot in the, the campus studio and use their equipment when I had everything I needed at home. So with a black sheet, a coffee table, and small sample bottles of perfume, I shot some really fantastic product images. This professor was even impressed. He asked how I did it. Let me just tell <laughs> I'm already laughing. Let me just tell you, the look on his face when I explained how I'd accomplished my images was something to behold, I bet it was. It was like his entire career and process flashed before his eyes. What do you mean you shot this in your living room? With a cheap set, (laughs) cheap of off-camera flash units and tiny perfume bottles. Oh, it was priceless and worth the slight grade deduction I got for not using the studio. Oh my, are you kidding me? You actually got deducted. Oh my God. Oh my God. That guy sounds like an absolute wanker. (laughs) What a knob! Oh my God, I'm so glad you did that. And yes, I think that um, expression probably would have seared itself into my mind as well, uh, alongside my very smug, shit-eating grin. Okay, if you would like to be a Rebel of the Week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, something big, something small, or something in between. You can email your Rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, a jai freaking gigantic thank you to all of my patrons. Like I love you guys so much, and we surpassed a hundred patrons this month as well, which is just insane and incredible and i know i talked about that earlier this month but i'm still just so humbled so thank you so much uh yanni jade upped her pledge thank you very much and we were joined by Josie smith as well so a huge thank you to all patrons old new and existing and upping (laughs) And stay where they are. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content, you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, enough from me. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Cahill. Ryan is an epic fantasy author who hails from Dublin, Ireland. Raised by parents who cherished books and adored stories, he has always been fascinated with the art of storytelling. Growing up with authors such as J.K. Rowling, Terry Pratchett, and J.R.R. R. Tolkien, before discovering the worlds of George R.R. R. Martin, Robert Jordan, and Brandon Sanderson, Ryan was always immersed in the art of world building, In the creation of a world that could transport you to a place in your mind where nothing else could ever reach you. There are three things Ryan has always told himself about writing. Write the books you want to read, write the books that your younger self would be proud of you for reading, and make sure they have dragons. <laughs> Hello and welcome.
1: Hi. Hi. <laughs> You have such a great reading voice. I'm so oh. jealous. <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I um it waxes and wanes, of course, because it depends if you're like reading a bio or if you're interacting in a conversation. If you're focusing. Yeah, exactly. But I actually recorded one of my nonfiction audiobooks. And spoiler to listeners, I am attempting to get the next one recorded before or or just after the book releases. But I don't know, we'll see. I have a massive trip in the summer, so we'll see how that goes. But anyway, enough about me hi <laughs> tell everyone a little bit about you and like your journey because as i discovered pre-recording you're not where i thought you were either so yeah yeah,
1: yeah um i don't you you told them quite strut it's it's early here okay i see that as a disclaimer my english will will wax and wane <laughs> um in just its linguistic strength but um yeah so i'm, I'm ryan ryan cattle um i started self-publishing March 2021 so since then I've released I released my debut on on March March 2021 and then a few months later in June I released a follow-up novella that's a prequel and then in December I released book two which is just sort of a thousand pages long so that was a that was a slog yeah and then in May just there I released my second novella and then I have the third book is due out in December so yeah, that that was crazy. I'm actually, I'm a biochemist by trade and that's what I was working in full-time in March. And then I made the decision to move with my partner from Ireland to New Zealand. And I quit my job in May because we were moving in July. Yeah, end of July. So that just worked time-wise. And then... It was kind of a dream for it to go full time. But then when I released book two in December, it just absolutely exploded. And it went from a dream to it would be silly not to do it. So that I just haven't, haven't gone back since. So I'm working full time since so moving.
0: A thousand pages. Can we, can we just talk about yeah. a thousand pages? You wrote a book that was 1000 pages long. Yeah. How many words is that?
1: That was 247,000 words. So okay. I'm currently, I'm currently on half a million words, um, just over half a million words.
0: Okay, so, so like two hundred and fifty thousand words. When you that, so that doesn't seem extreme anymore, right? I mean, that's a lot of fucking oh, words. A lot of words. Of,
1: you're in the middle of a words race at the minute, especially in epic fantasy and little RPG and stuff. It, it's crazy. It's an arms race for words. Some of the books are just getting nuts long. They're
0: so. Oh long. really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, okay, before we dive into the questions then, talk to me about this. Like, what do you think is driving that? So readers just want longer and longer and longer books? I hope they're not just... KU is just
1: becoming more dominant. Okay, okay. And KU has a better return for authors um, once they hit a certain length. So it's kind of the way it goes. Because I think before now, it was actually the other way. It was an arm's race for shorter books. Yeah. Because indie favours frequency of release. Yeah. So...
0: So... How do you, and this is just because I'm seriously nosy and I appreciate that we are Uh completely skipping over all of the questions that I have (laughs) covered
1: with. I told you, I warned you about tangents. I warned you.
0: (laughs) You did warn me. This is true. This is true. We're going to do so many. It's going to be great. But um, pacing. Talk to me about pacing in a 250,000 word beast of a tome.
1: It's, see, it's part of the beauty of epic fantasy is that you're expected to have multiple points of view. So I think in my second book, I have 14 POVs. So what, what it, yeah, don't even get me started. The third book is a nightmare. But um what it means is that you can complete you have a, an incredible grasp of pacing. And it it's what I'll talk about with some of the questions that we have coming up later anyway. But I think once you learn to manipulate that cast, your control of pacing changes massively because you can switch your POV and change it exactly when you need to change a tone. When you need to slow down, you switch it to a, like a heartfelt conversation and then smack your next chapter and it goes straight back up. And yeah, I think my second book actually has way faster pacing than my first one. And it's, it's quite a bit longer.
0: So, so. with, with 14 different points of view, do they all have you, 14 unique different voices Like is it all the same Is it all first person Is it all third uh, person Is it all omniscient Like how It's all
1: third person um, Limited And okay. I kind of joke That I basically have You know Multiple personalities At this stage Because it's It is <laughs> It's probably the toughest thing It's It's the toughest thing For trying to get through A first draft Because you know In your first draft Each of the characters Don't have their unique voices Completely plastered through Because so it depends What headspace you're in
0: mm-hmm.
1: Sometimes I can jump through And the character would have His voice straight, his or her voice straight away. Um, Sometimes it just doesn't. I have to go back and have to do it in editing. So yeah, it it can be tough, but yeah, it's it's fun.
0: And what are some of the things you like differentiate in order to create that different voice?
1: Well, there's loads of things, but I I read something a long time ago that a character should have an absolutely critical flaw um, to help you differentiate who they are. And by that, it was to make sure that the flaw is as specific as possible. Um, so your character has a has a flaw where you know who was it? I think it was described as Theresa May, right? So the flaw isn't that she's incompetent or that she's annoying or anything like that. It's that it's that she always believes she's the smartest person in every room when she never is.
0: Oh, I. And it's a highly specific that.
1: flaw. Yeah. And what it does is it changes. It instantly changes the way your character will interact with everything. So I I always love that. So I always try and come up with a really specific flaw for every character. And then what I do is every time I go into a scene, I always decide what the character wants from that scene, what their motivation is, and then also what their mood is going into the scene. And that helps to have some idea of what's going on.
0: I love that. I love that flaw. That's amazing. That's really got uh, got me thinking. Okay, I, I am gonna ask the questions
1: I've meant
0: to I just find this so interesting. Okay, so we are here to talk about epic fantasy. Yeah. So um I, I kind of have two questions for you. Um the first one is can you explain what that actually means to you personally? And how okay. does that um, what is the epic aspect of it? How does that dis- differentiate from normal fantasy? Um and how has that changed? You've talked about book length, so I just—is there anything else that has changed over the years to to bring us to where epic fantasy is now?
1: Yeah, I think like modern epic fantasy to me, and um, the different what difference between other fantasy is is epic, and by epic, I think that relates directly to scope and stakes. So I think you can have many other types of fantasy, obviously, and even just romantic fantasy is one of the bigger ones right now. It's it's massive, and JD Evans' book just won the SPFBO—was it seven or eight? and it was the first time a romantic fantasy book has has won, or a book that has very heavy uh, romance in it. I think book two, uh, Legacy of the Brightwatch, is quite romance-heavy as well. They're totally different um, stakes and scope to when you have epic fantasy. Jesus, my brain, I told you. It's going to waver every now and again. And I think for me, it Generally, it's the idea. Some people think scope isn't big. It doesn't have to be big. Um, like, for instance, my novella is 98 pages, my first one. But it's it's the scope and what's at stake in the world. So as opposed to being, it can still be character-driven, but as opposed to being smaller issues, it's that everything is at stake, usually. The scope, is, you have a massive world, and the whole world is going to be affected by what's happening. Or even sometimes it's why when you have like multiple POVs that makes it, it makes it so much easier. It's why it's synonymous with epic fantasy is because instead of say you have, we have seven continents in the world right now. And if you have a POV on each continent, all of a sudden your story seems much bigger in scope because Mm -hmm. you now have South America, North America, India, or Africa, Asia, they're all involved in this story. Whereas if it's just limited to one continent, it doesn't seem so epic. So I think that's generally what makes it epic fantasy. Uh, to me is is scope. I think the big the big changeover difference if you look back to like the grandfathers and grandmothers and grand everything of Epic Fantasy you look at Anne McCaffrey, you look at uh, Tolkien, the difference there is well Anne McCaffrey's stuff is more I think she describes her stuff as uh, as more science fiction than fantasy. But but still I think it's it's slightly It's not that it's it's narrower, but I think it's less about the conflict and more about the the beauty and the the complexity of the world for them. So when you go back to to Tolkien, it's all about everything's about beauty with him. Everything, all the language, the prose, the descriptions. And Robert Jordan is the same. I think I read an 80-page description of a room in one of the Wheel of Time books, which is insane. But I think now it's switched from beauty and wonder to conflict and when i say conflict is always conflict because conflict drives every story but military conflict i think that's kind of synonymous with epic fantasy now even though that was there with token it wasn't the crux of the story but i think that has changed quite a lot i think it's probably to do with modern times and the way things have gone but that's what i've noticed and i'm sure it's debatable but it's something that i've seen
0: Oh, that's such an interesting reflection. Like this is this is my jam, thinking about like markets and how that fits with society. Um, yeah. And yeah, that makes so much sense because it was funny for me. Oh, sorry, let me talk. No, 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 go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead.
1: No, it was just because I my series is, is classic fantasy, and that's what it's described as by everybody. And people are kind of going, "Oh, it's a classic fantasy that uh, you know we haven't seen a lot of in the last while," and it, it that's crazy to me because it's probably the single most marketable genre of fantasy there ever is because it's just completely broad. It is like, it's classic fantasy for a reason because it's all the classic tropes and all the classic elements and and we kind of, st- and that's in the vein of, of Tokyo and Robert Jordan, we've steered away from that completely and it was almost like that was like a niche genre. Like you jump into it and it was just much easier to, to market yourself and that seems insane to me. It's...
0: I just thought oh, my brain is going like I uh, the thing that I find so interesting is that as authors we often forget to look at society, to look at how that is affecting and impacting um, uh, our fiction and the trends and the tropes that are happening and I think it's a thing that's like it's, it's a big, uh, what is the word, a missed opportunity that so many indies could look at what is coming, like look what happened with you know the big C word, the, you know, the pandemic and how that affected dystopian fiction and what's happened to dystopian fiction now.
1: And All you have to do is look at Travis Baldry.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, oh, go on. Now,
1: so, well, Travis Baldry. So Travis is a, a massive audiobook narrator and he's, um, he's the narrator of Will White's uh, Cradle series. He's also a lovely human being. And he released his book, Legends of Lattes, and he wrote it in nano NaNoWriMo, like 68,000 words, um, and then released it a few months later. All Of a sudden, he was selling hundreds of thousands of copies. He was in the top 100 in all rankings audiobook, physical, ebook. And it was, it what was, it? he says, it's high fantasy, low stakes. It is about an orc who gives up the sword to open a coffee shop. It was bought by Tor in the UK and the US. It, it just absolutely blew out the gates. I think it has about 5,000 ratings now. On Amazon, and this is in less than a year, maybe eight, nine months.
0: Why do you think that is? Because we were so, t- the world was tired of high stakes in the world and wanted low stakes and comfort.
1: Yeah, and I don't even think the world is tired of it. I think it's one of those drop it in opportunities. I think the world will never be tired of epic stakes because we're in a world that is essentially failing and dying all the time. So there's always epic stakes, but it's nice to have those drops of. It's literally just like slice of life fantasy.
0: Yeah, and it's one I of am.
1: those where it just happened. I don't even think Travis was looking for anything. He was just wanted to write a book, and he was sick of. Now I'm putting words in his mouth. I've only talked to him once or twice about it, but I think he was sick of, you know, the world and kind of wanted to write something that was a bit cozier and nicer. Mm. And and that was that, and it just absolutely exploded.
0: And I am hearing that cozy. Like cozy term connected to fantasy and other genres all over the place as well. So I have a, I
1: have a few friends who are writing in cozy fantasy, and I, I can see a huge uptick in their sales, reviews, everything in the last six seven months.
0: Mm. Mm. These
1: books have been out for a year or two years.
0: Okay, I I'm going to ask my second question. I can't believe I'm really asking <laughs> <laughs> the second one. I do love. The- so, um what do you think are the biggest mistakes an author can make when attempting to write um epic fantasy so i suppose i mean that more like are there any craft mistakes they can make
1: yeah i think i think it definitely is and i think it, there's one that i know that i i made a point of trying to avoid um and it's going too big too fast particularly if you're a new author and what i mean by that is like we said earlier is that you know, one of the easiest ways to control scope in an epic fantasy is to have more points of view because it instantly grows scope. But so for instance, with with, with my first book, um, a Blood and Fire, I knew that I wanted my cast to grow massively and I knew I wanted this real epic feel where you're showing, you might have a main character, but these other characters who were as air quotes side characters, We'll have as much time as the main character going forward. And it's going to be huge, epic story threads. But I knew that I didn't have the skill and craft to do that justice. But I still wanted to tell that story. So one main character has maybe sixty-seven, probably 70 plus percent of the word count in book one. Well, I'm just lacing through a few different points of view to start their stories in book one and show you that it's multi-POV and... And I think it was only then after writing that book. And then I went in and I wrote my novella afterwards and I made sure I kind of, well, I'll talk about this later, but I basically broke every single rule with the novella and that novella is meant to be short fiction and it's meant to be in a single area focus, single character focus, because you're trying to tell a really short story. And so I naturally split it up into four sections of four different POVs. And I I did that because one, it told the story really well in an interesting way, but I wanted to learn POV shifts and I wanted to learn different voices and then when I got to my second book, I understood what I was doing a lot more.
0: Yeah, I think and that's I, a fantastic yeah. st- strategy like for experimentation like in a safe uh, environment so, and, and something that's still going to make you money anyway. Um, that, that's brilliant. Okay, let's talk about audience building because yeah. you are not the average author. That is a very quick turnaround uh, to have built an audience. So like, <laughs> how the fuck did you do that?
1: honestly I think it's it's. I just spend a lot of time doing it Um, a, a lot of graft like I think and I think that's the answer most people don't want to hear but it's it's just that in general like, even when I started I was working full time working 12 hour shifts and I'd get up at 6am work 7am to 7pm from home exercise eat and I'd, I'd write and go on social media and stuff from like 9 in the evening till 2 or 3 in the morning Get back up at 6 it was insane but um, I just Try to be really, really active and really, really engaging. I, I spent a long time building my newsletter, and I think there's a phase in everything in social media newsletter building where it doesn't work. There's a phase. I look at it, and this is my biochemist microbiologist brain. I look at it like a lag log phase of bacteria, which is going kind to of go over most people's head. But it's essentially that it's if you look like look like at a graph where it's a really, 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 really slow build, <laughs> and then compound there's compound sort of interest. Yeah, and and that's the way it works with it. And most people give up in that lag phase. They Mm -hmm. give up, and then the first little bit where they're not seeing traction, and like even Twitter, for instance, I was on Twitter for five, six months, and it was growing like a snail crawling because I absolutely refuse One thing that I I hate, I really, 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 really hate is follow for a follow on social media. The reason I hate it isn't because you don't uplift somebody else, or it is because people talk about the algorithms on Amazon. Every platform uses algorithms, and they use engagement and conversion to judge quality of content. So, if you have a two thousand followers but you get five likes on every tweet, they will stop showing your tweet to people
0: mm-hmm.
1: because you're not giving engaging content, which you might be giving but there's 957 people on your account who do not care about what you're tweeting about. And that's kind of, that's, that's the crux of it, is, is quality of content over quantity. Um, I think I spent a lot of time pushing through that on Twitter and pushing through that on Instagram and stuff, Facebook's kind of dead, but I've done that and I, I think my newsletter, I spent a long time building that newsletter and going through and building it slowly and starting off with a newsletter swaps on story origin, which I thought was really important. And a long time where you don't see a lot of returns for it. You can get engagement. And I tried to reply back to people every single time they email me. And that had built slowly from 200 people to 300 to 2,000 to 4,000 to 5,000. And it's keeping an open rate of nearly 60% and a click rate of, I don't know, like 15, 16% plus sometimes. And that's just from after a while i just started building it slowly i don't do any more swap. I, don't, I do swaps now but i don't do them through story origin anywhere else because um i'm getting about 250 300 organic and um, subscribers a month just from back matter and stuff which is which is fantastic but that took a long time to get to i was getting like five mm-hmm. and i think people see that five or six and it's a drip feed and they hate it but it does it grows and it's a, well who was it who said it? Um, Connor, I hate Connor McGregor, but it was Conor McGregor's coach and its stick to itness, which I think is is really, really, really important.
0: Yeah, there's a few people that talk about it, and um, Seth Godin is one who talks about the dip. He's got a very short book uh, called The Dip, yeah. and it's so funny that you say this because literally my newsletter last week for my nonfiction, so for the authors that um, yeah. listen in, was all about compound interest in but in writing and the fact that you can work and it's like one reader by one reader by one reader and then all of a sudden it explodes. Um yeah. So yeah, I love that you also said exactly the same thing. But it, <laughs> it's it, like,
1: is starting an- starting it's engagement people forget about engagement so much they go i put out a tweet and i got 10 replies i'm like yeah but you didn't reply to any of them and what that means is those 10 people will not reply to you the next time because you're a waste of their time in their head because they're trying to engage with you and you're not engaging back and it's the same with emails and stuff
0: with your audience building did you did, is the majority of what you've done via social media and newsletter swaps did you use it like have you done paid advertising have you done anything else Oh, yeah
1: yeah I've, I've, I've done paid advertising I do paid advertising now um but I, I wouldn't go I've set my limit I don't go above ten percent of of what I take in in paid advertising and um I only do amazon ads i I did Facebook ads for a while but I was finding basically negative returns on them um there's a lot of mixed information on Facebook ads. I don't think a lot of it's very good out there. Like okay. all the stuff, people would say, "Oh, don't put your book cover on your Facebook ad. It brings up your CPC." I was like, "Yeah, it does." But everyone who goes through to the ad knows they're buying a book. Like you, that it's it's just it's it's complete misanalyzing or misanalyzing of metrics. It's going, "Oh, my CPC is really low." I was like, "Yeah, but your conversion is terrible." Like mm-hmm. the best results I ever saw for conversion were having a book with a nice background and my only text was an excerpt from the book because it means the person who clicks the ad has read the writing style likes the writing style seen the picture and knows the book and when they get to your page they're not surprised mm-hmm. like all the information is you know put a dragon and a warrior with a sword and then they click it and they realize oh it's a book and they don't buy anything
0: so oh you are fascinating to, Imagine, to talk sorry. to <laughs> no no are you kidding me oh my god this is so interesting i i really hope i i am finding this deeply fascinating and also i like that you're controversial so you know
1: <laughs> that's always gonna go <laughs> down my entire well life it goes to exist that way <laughs>
0: um okay So um, I think maybe we've covered this. Obviously you're in KU um, and we've talked about the fact that you do social media, um, that you do uh, Amazon ads. So where do you find the most interaction with your audience? Where do you spend the most of your time like interacting and engaging? It's kind of
1: switched as I've moved along. It started with Instagram and then I started Twitter and I have a lot of engagement on Twitter. I, I know, and it, that's the funny thing, is that one of the number one rules I've ever built is do not listen to any other author about what they say doesn't work. It's not because they're wrong and it's not because they want to hurt you. It is simply because different things work for different people. And unless you're willing to push through any kind of hindrances you have from your own personality style, which some people do, some people are over-interacting, some people under-interact, some people hate interacting. Like, and sometimes it's, you push through or you don't, it's a choice to make. But I think... I've moved over to Twitter, but a lot of mine, now was emails. And I basically, I started up a Discord server a while ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and it's, it's actually quite a funny story. I Facebook's one of the few things I, I don't really bother with too much. But I did a giveaway of a paperback. Um, I decided to make it international on Facebook maybe nine months ago, 10 months ago. And a girl from Denmark won. So I've sent her the paperback. Flash forward nine months. And she is one of like... The most kind of fervent fans that I have. She's a lovely, 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 lovely woman. She also now mods my Discord server. She does loads of different bits for me. She's building a wiki for me, um, and it's just funny how it's those things. And one thing I would piece of advice to any author I've ever met in the world is you need to understand the value of the intangible. Like, and it's it. I have a whole. Thought process that I would go on massive tangents about at the can of worms all the time between the difference in marketing and advertising, how advertising is um a defined input for a hopeful defined output, whereas marketing is, you know, any input for a completely intangible output, but it's kind of the difference between investing in Tesla and investing in Bitcoin. Mm. You know, your potential returns are explosive in one and more consistent in the other. Mm. Um, but yeah, I find my Discord now gets great interaction and my my emails as well. I think that's what a lot of people again maybe pull back on a bit. Oh, I don't see I don't see the point in the newsletter and you know, don't get any engagement. And I was like, Yeah, but you need to put as much effort into writing your newsletter as you do writing a chapter of the book. Yes.
0: Oh my god. Yes, 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 yes. And also use your voice, right? So that, I That's got...
1: the absolute key thing. And, They're not there but, to read your content, they want to they want to hear what you have to say and talk to yeah. you.
0: Exactly. I have always had a massive issue writing emails and I don't know what my problem was and I hated it. And of course, it was really slow growing and it was, a you know, I would avoid doing it at all costs. And then in January, I was just like, why am I making this such a big fucking deal? And so um, back in January, I was like, right, well, I am going to send F- one every single week and because I have two different lists it's either or and I'm just gonna write exactly how I speak and I'm gonna give my thoughts and some of them will be really valuable and some of them might be bum fluff you know like, well, I a more
1: tangents there than I do here
0: yeah I know exactly yeah. and and but the thing is I used my voice and the same voice that is in my books and the fucking difference, I cannot tell you Like we are not just talking about like 1% increments We're talking There's about tens of percentages difference. Of open rates increasing Like unbelievable yeah, But not
1: just that now I get like, holy crap And it's it's actually gotten tough So I was getting, you yeah, know, like normal like Anything, maybe like one email every week or so But now, holy crap Now I'm i going I said it maybe out oh, my emails every week And I'm looking at 60, 70 new emails every single time and because I, I have a welcome sequence as well for a yeah. little and stuff like that. It's just so many responses, which is amazing. But it just means that I can't always respond quickly because it, yes. it takes a long time to go through them.
0: Yeah, oh, I reply oh, every other week because I add because prioritizing words at the moment. So I reply every other week. And I make sure that I've replied before I send the next email like that. That's and,
1: a rule I have to. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because that's, yeah. that is what I am capable of. Otherwise I will literally sit at my computer all day, every day. So like I always make sure I respond, but I also have an auto sequence that basically says, do not expect to reply quickly from me because I, I, I'm replying to stuff. Um, it was
1: good, but it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah, turned into yeah. every the week
0: now. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, so we've talked quite a lot about marketing, but is there is there another lesson that you've learned, maybe the biggest marketing lesson that you've learned, specific to epic fantasy at all? Or do you feel that we've kind of covered it?
1: Specific to epic fantasy is tough because... Yeah, I think there is there is obviously genre-specific marketing, but I, the way I look at marketing for me is I market myself, not my books. So, so when
0: you were talking earlier and you were t- doing that comparison between um, Tesla mm-hmm. and uh, Bitcoin or w- w- whatever the comparison was yeah, in yeah. my head, I was like, yeah, it's the difference between putting a paid advert out and, and building your brand as you as the author. Like that was kind of, is that a good s- summary of what you're trying
1: to? Yeah. Cause even it, it's strange because it's a small thing, but I do see people on social media authors. And and even I've i, th- I seen publishers do it, not two authors, but where basically they pen the author or peg the author into a series. Mm. So like your social media name would be the series of your book. Um, or there's authors who, a lot of the time in trial publishing, I don't know how prevalent it is now, but from what I've seen is that the publisher actually creates a website, which is one of the worst things in the world an author can have because they don't have control of their own website, which is meant to be their home base. And it can be after the series. And I think you always, 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 more valuable to have yourself marketed than your books because that means you are gaining a reader and not just your series and it means hopefully that as long as you stay you know consistent in the quality you're producing that those readers will follow you and stay with you and it's the most important thing
0: it really is because anybody can just bash out a book a month or several books a year but unless you are building you and your identity and readers that are reading for you and not for any other reason then you can kiss exactly you your career. Create,
1: it's how you create like super fans and like I don't, you know, I don't think you create super fans but it's like anything people people get really happy and I could definitely have better words than that but that's what the editing process is for. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, people, people, yeah. people love to support people that they get invested in and they love to, to to watch a career grow and they love to be a part of something and I think if you foster that environment and create it, like when you have, like, I have my Discord and you people who are involved in what you're doing, they will share it about you from the rooftops. Yes. And it's one of the most intangible returns. And again, that, that's probably the lesson that I would give in my head to myself earlier is learning that the intangible matters. Learning that like, that's really, I did a physical art campaign for my second book where basically I made the kind of jump off a ledge choice to go and create special art editions like traditional publishers do and create a number of them and send them out all over the world to reviewers and just like a trad publisher would do from NetGalley. And it obviously cost me money. Like I reinvested sales from my first book and put it into it. And it doesn't give you a direct return. It's a free book with free shipping that you pay for completely. So free does not apply to you, but I would do it again in a heartbeat. I did mm. see the different things and I saw the difference in interest and the buzz and how happy people were to be a part of something. And not many indies do physical art campaigns, especially like there was a special edition art where I changed the cover art and stuff like that. And I think people loved it. Like they get go, oh my God, there's only you a know, hundred of these in the world. And now I have one. And it's one of those things, where I, I wanted to do it, but it didn't give me anything directly back. And a lot of people won't do it. Some people won't do it because they don't want the money. That's totally fine. I didn't have the money to do it for my first book either, so I didn't do it. But some people who have the money are afraid, and it, it is a risk. But I think a lot of those things are risks. Everything we do is risks. In advertising. Oh,
0: this is. I'm just find this so interesting. It's one of the things I've been <laughs> pondering as I go into a new genre, and I'm like, do I? Don't I? Because because it is a smaller, more niche genre, um, but it is very heavily paperback dominated. And I'm like, you know, I think I'm just going to have to spend the money and and try and take the risk. And the other thing that I was going to say is uh, one of the words that I think you might be looking for is community, because you're building that. There you go. There you go. You're building that intangible community. And my patron guys will all be going, oh, because we all say the same thing. It's
1: it's insane. It's very funny. It's on a Twitter interaction the other day. So there's a big, like, I'm not understating it. There's a big thing about which order you read my books in, because I have a novella that's a prequel and I have a first book, but they can be read in either order. And there's generally to a point that I've had to put a thing in the first book and they have, there's sword forms in each book. So now there's a a reading path based after a sword form and it's become this thing, okay? But basically another guy, it's become a thing where basically anytime someone new reads it, there'll be a horde of people who go, that's great, but you read it in the wrong order, okay? And <laughs> and that keeps happening. But I think the other day there was a there was a misinterpretation on Twitter where someone said, "Oh, no, like, I'm I'm happy," like you, but you read it in the wrong order, and you to quite offended, um, <laughs> and and I had to kind of tweet like oh, he's, he's only joke and it's kind of a thing, um, but it, it's 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 really funny how that works because it's just it's all the time now and it's 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 weird but nice to see.
0: I love it. I love it. These are the things that like bring us deep joy. Okay, let's talk about voice in epic fantasy we touched a little bit on this earlier but yeah. like what do you think are the most important elements of an epic fantasy voice
1: so I've talked about this for a while because especially because I write in classic fantasy um and what, what I mean by that is people are absolutely obsessed with being original okay and did you bring something new to the genre are you original and I was like I never wrote a book to bring something new to the genre I wrote a book because I really really love storytelling and I love books and I love fantasy and that's why I wanted to write a book I think what people forget is I know it sounds negative to say you will never be original okay because that's not true you can always put original takes and spins on things but I think there are very few books that sell like hotcakes because they're an original idea very, very few. There are books that do it. There are books that have completely novel spins and twists on things. And but that's so uncommon. People sell books because of their voice, because they are telling a really you look at any fantasy shelf or any any shelf. Like look at romance in particular, because romance is it's a repeatable genre where basically a lot of them are doing the same thing, but it doesn't reduce the craft. So I have, my editor told me one time, if you ever want to learn how to how to write an inter-character relationship, read Romance. Yeah. Because the whole book is carried on the relationship between two characters. And all this hand in other areas, but oh my God, like, there's such craft to it. Like, yeah, they are
0: craft. amazing. And they get slated yeah. so often and it does my fucking head in because Romance is amazing. The way I look at it is,
1: if you can write, if you can repeatedly release books that are based off a formula that everyone knows, and there, there is, it has to be a formula because romance is incredibly trope dependent because which is not a bad thing. I love tropes. It's not a bad thing because it's just the way it works. It's not a romance if your if your love interest suddenly dies by a car accident at the end of the book. It, it, that's not how romances end. If you do end it, like that, it's a tragedy. It's not, it's not a classic romance. It changes the genre a bit. Um, but Going off on a tangent, the reason I'm saying that is, coming back from the tangent, the reason I'm saying that is because that's what drags readers in, is understanding that you might be telling not the same story but telling the same type of story as every other book on the shelf. But What sets you apart is the voice. And it's learning to embrace that voice and learning to, to understand that because I know I picked up a Joe Abercrombie book the other day and I read some of Joe Abercrombie's prose, and Joe Abercrombie is totally honest. Like I don't know a lot of people sing praises, but my praise is even higher. He's one of the most incredible authors I've ever read. The way he he infuses his voice into his words is a craft beyond it. Genuinely, if you, it's almost embarrassing to read it and go, "Oh my god." And that actually, I got I got down for about ten minutes, and I was like, "I can never write at this level." And then I realized I write a completely different way like completely and utterly different. There is no comparison. And if I was even to put people who are famous, because I'm clearly not Joe Abercrombie, you put Brandon Sanderson beside Joe Abercrombie, you cannot even compare the craft and the way they write. It's totally different. And it's understanding that you don't have to compare yourself to everyone, That you are you and your voice is what's important. It's not the story you tell, it's how you tell the story. Mm. That's a massive thing for I found for me as a new author coming through, trying to have confidence in what I was doing, that that was really, really, really important. And finding those touchstones that you're good at, and which you'll find after your first book, or after you've been released, and after people give you feedback, people you might find that, oh, uh, you know, people love your action scenes, or they love your dialogue, or maybe opposite. Maybe you need to work on those things. You should always, in my head, always write to your strengths, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't try and improve your weaknesses.
0: This is just so wonderfully inspirational. <laughs> I love this so much. And as you were talking, like I know there's one particular patron who will be completely agreeing with you about um, Joe Abercrombie. I, uh, however, hate Joe Abercrombie. <laughs> oh, that, that's but that's that's the beauty but, of writing. Yes, and that's what I mean. Like I, so well, I tried to to pick up one, and I was just like, I cannot get through this. But one it's because, thing I would
1: challenge you on, though, mm-hmm. right? And that's what I swear, love. It. I think you should always challenge yourself. You can hate them, hate them all you want. But say, take, um, read the first chapter of Heroes, okay? And you might hate it and you might not pick it back up again. You might not go through it, but read it and try and tell me that his voice doesn't come across like a foghorn. Try and tell me that when you're reading it, even though nothing gritty happens, does no killing, nothing dark, nothing evil, nothing miserable at all. It is literally two groups talking but you will feel ooze dripping off the walls.
0: Yeah, and- it, it, it's more like uh, the length of descriptions of things. I'm a bit more of a faster-paced reader, so it's less him, I think, and more that like historical fiction. There's a big on-running joke in the community yeah. about the fact that I don't really enjoy historical fiction. I keep trying, but I just can't find one that I enjoy. But this, you are right, is the beauty um, of genre and and having different authors and also the fact that even though i don't necessarily like his books i could still go in and read with an eye for deconstruction because i would still yeah. be able to learn something from him and his. And that's exactly
1: what i mean yeah you might hate the books and you might mm-hmm. not like the way it goes but it's just he is He's a master of the craft in infusing voice into everything that happens. And one mm-hmm. of the most important things i found about craft, and it's shared everywhere, at least I see it shared everywhere, is that any single time you can make two things do one thing, make it happen.
0: Yeah. Yes, yes.
1: Any time anytime you can learn, it's about world building and like about craft. And I think there's a question about world building coming up potentially, mm-hmm. um, which I'll talk about it then. But making two things do one thing is so important, and he's a master at doing it.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And, and, and you were talking about, you know, just be you. And I think that if that is the key. Find the thing that is uniquely you and then do that on acid. Like, put it on steroids and do that to the extreme.
1: One character that the new It's funny. I have a character that was essentially she was in book one and she was in book two and she's in the new novella that I wrote here, okay? But the way I've done it what I love to do is I easter egg a lot of stuff from my books so mm-hmm. she was only like in a single scene in book one and kind of it's when people read her in this new one because this new one is a split between her it's a novella it's technically a technical novel with a length split between her and another character and um, kind of like a buddy cop role um, but she is like she is this sassy dark humoured just she's almost like my Deadpool in that like she does. She she calls the fourth wall kind of stuff. Like you're in a dark fortress at night, and she's like, and someone's like, "Oh, we gotta split up," And she's like, "That is just fucking stupid." <laughs> like it's calling. It, she's the one who calls out all the shitty, ridiculous tropes, and she does it live. And it's funny because I have gotten. I can't even begin to explain the amount of emails and messages and getting tagged in Facebook groups. People going, "This character, Belina, is like my favorite character that you've written," and. And it's funny because it's the first time, because in a fantasy world, you don't want to soak in modern dark humor into stuff like that because it can take you out. It's the first time I've really let my sarky sense of humor drip completely into a character. And I loved writing her. I think that's one of those really cool things.
0: Yeah, oh, I completely agree. I, I love all of this so much. And it's so funny because my nonfiction craft books are full of sarcasm, dick jokes, um, like ridiculous tangents. Yeah. Because that's me and but that's how I read the are. best
1: nonfiction. Like David Gochran does exactly the same. I love I David Gochran's books on Amazon, Amazon Decoded and Book Bobs are the first nonfiction books I actually I actually read faster than fiction books because yeah. it's so funny and so witty. And it's just, it's like having a conversation with them when you're reading. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's a monologue, but you know.
0: But but like you, it, it's taken me a while to, to figure out how to do that in fiction, because I don't know, maybe I was trying to do, I don't know what I was trying to do, but I was getting very uptight and worked you know out what it is?
1: It. You know what it is? And I could be wrong, but what I've noticed in a few other people, and when I see other emails and stuff come out, is that it almost a lot of them come across as almost like ad copy because people want to be really professional. You want to try and, especially when you're an author, because you walk out the street, you talk to your cousin or your auntie and they go, oh, that's nice. What, are, you, are you going to take on a real job? Yeah. Or, or what else are you going to do? And so your entire your entire career is focused. Now, it shouldn't be, but I know personally when I'm talking to people, um, I'm trying to prove that it's legitimate and professional and it could be a subconscious thing. But I know when I started writing emails and stuff, I wanted to come across as really professional. As like, you know, this is my job. i want to take this seriously. And then I realized that that's just not what this, it is professional. but That is not the attitude you need to have. You do not need to constantly prove yourself that, you know, this is professional. And you are professional and, you know, you're crisp and clean. And it's, I know personally that that's what it was for me. And sometimes I see emails come in. And I, I, I can see them and I go, I know what you're trying to do, but it's, it's really ad copy. It's like you're, Trying to sell something to someone in the email. And it's just, I don't think personally you should ever try and sell things to people in the email. It's kind of like this is our journey, we're doing this together. Um, I'm gonna be as sarky and ridiculous to you as I am to anybody else.
0: Mm-hmm. I love it. Okay, let's talk about world building because that is a huge, enormous part of fantasy. So like where do you start? How do you do it? Like, how do you keep all the millions and billions of things in your brain? Um, yeah. Do you, did you know everything before you started? Has it grown as you've gone? Um, yeah. Talk to me about world building.
1: This would be a podcast on its yeah. own. Um, yeah. World building is, yeah. Obviously, it's kind of redundant to say world building is massive. Um, I personally started with a map. So I had my story in my head. I knew not my story, but like I had characters and I've always kind of wanted to do this and I, I wanted to place I need to picture things. So I started learning to draw a map. Um, and at first it was shitty pencil lines and didn't know what was going on. And Then iterations and iterations and iterations later and eventually I had kind of what I wanted. Um, and then it helped me to visualize what was going on. And for me, I'm not, People talk about planners and pantsers. And I've said this on a few different um, podcasts and stuff, is I don't actually believe that it exists. Because to me, if, if you're a people pride themselves on being pantsers because it's something cool. Now, there are people who are maybe more hardcore than others, but <clears throat> in general, it's a cool tool to say, I just sat down and wrote this massively cool book. <laughs> but the reality is, the way I look at it is like, pantsers are like even more extreme plotters than plotters are because plotters plot out a brief document or bullet points and Panthers, they plot an entire book and then rewrite it. So like to me, like a Panthers first draft is like a really extensive plot. So that's kind of the way I look at it. I'm like half and half. And what I'll do is usually I have a lot of different things going on and things that I want in different parts of the world. And I, I use Evernote and I use Google Drive. So I have like a huge file on Google Drive that details all different ranking systems and parts of magic systems and different cultures and how they work and how different things happen and how they interact with people, different leaders, and who they like and who they don't like. and Because I, I, I had to. I fucking had to. Even just sectional characters and eye color because fucking hell, that gets annoying. um Of all that sort of stuff, but it grows as it goes. Like one of, one of the f- kind of like fan favorite character is basically there's this guy who... He's one of the bad guys, you know, air quotes. We don't really have bad, bad guys. But um, he makes a lot of his decisions based on a coin flip due to something that happened in his past. It's a mysterious event that happened in the past. I don't know what it is, but it hasn't revealed yet. But when he started out, he wasn't in the story. So I like doing that. I love having loads of world building um, established. Now I have thousands of years of history based off certain things, but it, it builds over time as well. So I started off and he was a captain on a ship and then he was doing something and then all of a sudden he flipped a coin and then, you know, 15 minutes later and I was on a different screen writing 500 years of backstory um, because this character just made so much sense in my head and I went off with that. And, like, I think that's really important with, with fantasy in particular because I think most of, most of us who write fantasy. It is that love of storytelling and world building and is that love of crazy, awe-inspiring stuff. And that needs creative flow. To me, it can't all be structured. So you need to structure it, but you need to let yourself run, like and just like like me, run off in tangents all the time. Because that's where the fun stuff comes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I also love Easter eggs. And uh like I I I The thing that I love most about the series I just finished is that I laced an Easter egg all the way through the uh, final book. And it was essentially like a book, like a journal that one of the characters was writing Mm. and he hands it to the protagonist at the end of the book. And I wrote it. And so you can then actually read the journal as well. So like, yeah, that was like, I love Easter eggs like that. But of course, you know, their character Easter eggs as well and magic and blah, blah, blah and all that other stuff. But yeah.
1: It's why I have have my novellas in between each of the books now. And that's that's that. It's like giving that back too, because novellas don't earn the same amount of money solely because the way Amazon structures their series, you can't efficiently put novellas into the series without mislabeling them as numbered books in the series. Yeah. But I, I do those and I bring them out to tell huge amounts of backstory and without bogging the main series down. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a little mini gift to readers and that like, oh, what's that kind of short story you wish um, Robert Jordan wrote about this person or Emma Caffrey wrote about this person? So Well, I'm going to write it. It's going to be there and you can just go read it.
0: I love it. Talk to me... Talk to me about giving stuff to the readers. So like tropes, because that they are little reader gifts, I think. Um, I know that there are certain tropes that I love and that I will like almost guarantee to buy a book if it has like any lovers. Um, but talk to me about tropes and epic fantasy. What even are they? Like what what you know, what do you find it's really important to include? Like, are there more popular ones? Like, do you just ig- ignore them?
1: Yeah. Like- I think, and bigger tropes else depends on what kind of story you want to write, really. Um, all tropes can be used; it just depends on how you use them. Like, they've, they've, there's loads of them in epic fantasy—so many. Um, you know, to do with like the chosen one and the old mentor, and you go on a quest and all that sort of stuff. And um, I think, yeah, it really depends. I have a lot of tropes in my first book, in particular, just because, like, you know, the way I look at tropes. All right. And in general, the only time anyone who complains about a trope is if it's a trope they don't like. <laughs> that's just the way it works. So you, you call it a trope if it's something you don't like. Right? It's a bit tropey. All that means is there was something that's common within the genre that you don't like in that book. That's all it means um, to me. Anyway, I think they're tenets of the genre. Like I said, with romance, a trope for romance is a happy ending. Okay. But it's it's transcended to being a trope to being a tenet in that, like, without the happy ending, it's not a traditional romance book. Mm. Um, so there's, there's, there's loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of the fantasy and it just depends to what level you want to write the book and what you want to go about it. I think it, it can be really important to, to subvert them and to mess around with them and sometimes just to poke fun at stuff. Like, I know I have a, a scene I have coming up. Basically, it's really funny. So I have about over 200 named characters in my books, okay? And sometimes I go... Well, as people go, oh, some of those names are so similar. You have, like, Damon and Dalin. Like, there's four characters that start with the letter D, and I get shit for it. And I'm like, there's 200 <laughs> characters in this book, and there's, there's there's only so many letters in the alphabet to start with. <laughs> all right? But I did have one that got very unfortunate, and I have a sister, so I have a character, and his sister is called Alina, and one of the friends that he meets in a different, uh, in one of the novellas, is Belina. Now, Belina is the one who's a sarcastic, dark human, fourth wall breaking character. So for me, I think one of the, one of the most underused things by authors in, in epic fantasy and a lot of other ones because they want to be professional, I don't think it is, is hanging a lantern on it.
0: So I don't, I don't know if
1: you've heard the term. So the term is when you know you've done something, but you can't change it. So instead of trying to move on like it didn't happen, you hang a lantern on it and show everybody you know what's going on. So, and it's a really, really, really effective piece of craft in that, so when these two characters meet and they haven't met, I'm going to have my fourth wall character kind of go, that kind of, no, I realize nobody can see my video, but, mm-hmm. you know, kind of just kind of side-eye side eye the guy and side-eye the sister and be like, has nobody realized <laughs> that we have basically the same name? <laughs> and, and it's one of those things that I think it's, it's so effective in craft but if you do it wrong, people are worried it'll be cheesy. But that's the thing. It depends on the character. And as long as you're true to the character, and as long as the character's voice when they're calling it out makes sense or the narrative voice when it's calling it out makes sense. You know, if I'm in her POV, which I won't be at that time, but if I was in her POV, you know, she, she couldn't help but notice that this was this and this was that. And I think... That's a really effective piece of craft and it's, it, it's it, it can be a little tropey depending on genre you're in, but I think those kind of things are really important for they're great for voice and those loads of other bits.
0: I fucking love four-floor breaks. I love uh, footnotes, I love asides, I love tangents, I love it all, I fucking, like, (laughs) when an author does that, I'm like, oh my god, smother that shit all over the book, like, Jay Kristoff, it, like, is a proper, like, footnote wanker, like, he absolutely loves a footnote, and, like, I love it, I love the (laughs) footnote, like, and, and people hate it, and I'm like, why it creates such amazing character voice and like, uh, 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 I just it I think blows it's just, it's just my mind. Those in
1: particular are such a break from the norm In epic fantasy. I think you'll always get that divide. Like, I think the divide for J.K. Christoph's books is very clearly on the side of loving it, or else you wouldn't be a multi international bestseller. Yeah, but there's a lot of people that anything, anything like that, like, oh, it's not traditional, and like, yeah, but it's great.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah exactly You'll win me over If you have them So yeah And and Maybe I need to start Employing them Because that's the shit I love right So maybe I need to do more of that I love doing it Yeah Uh, Actually that's just Giving me an idea Um, Okay right Where am I I don't even know Where I am anymore Um Okay, so my last question before I ask the ultimate podcast question is how do you keep your readers engaged between books? Because although you're in Kindle Unlimited, you're not Mm. releasing a book a month, given that you write two hundred and fifty thousand word tomes. So, yeah, how are you keeping readers engaged between your big books?
1: On top of that, there are a few of them who've read it in a day.
0: Shut up. A thousand page book in a day. No
1: fucking joke.
0: Oh my God.
1: And it's like incredible, but it's so depressing as well. (laughs) Like, put so many months of my life into that and it's gone. You're like, when's the next one? Why is it? Why is it not out yet? And a lot of it's in jest, but it's really serious. And I'm like, what the fuck do you think (laughs) I am? Like, it's like, you just read Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone five times. in a day (laughs) you psychopath
0: (laughs) oh my god I love it. I mean, I can read a book a day, but certainly not a hundred, a thousand word book. Oh my, a thousand word, a thousand page book.
1: I, I assume you could read a thousand word book very quickly, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's part of what I
0: try. And even it's funny
1: because I released the novellas in between, which are like my first one was twenty five thousand words. And my second novella was about fifty thousand words, so it's technically like a it's it's a novel for some genres, um, and that was kind of like my you know break in between. But I suppose this is where you're going a bit deeper into marketing and market research. There's different genres that have different allowances for frequency release. It's no, no strange fact that in, in the indie world, frequency is king. It does not matter. Frequency is king. Now I'll go in and I'll see, I see, again, you go to romance authors because romance is the dominant genre in all of Amazon. Romance trashes everything else. It just the Amount of books sold, the amount of money that comes in from romance is unprecedented. It's all over the place, um, and some of them will release like every month, literally every month. And they can have sixty, they have sixty thousand word books, and they're charging more for that book than I'm charging for a two hundred and fifty thousand word book. They've earned it though. They've built their base. They've built their craft. They've done that, and they brought it up. So frequency in the indie world is absolutely key. So when I was coming into it, I knew. The types of book that I wanted to write were not going to be 60,000 word books. It just isn't the type of books I want to write. So I don't know if you've seen my covers much. They're behind me over there in the video. I don't think anyone on the podcast can see them, but they're they're more simple iconography style covers. And that was done on purpose. Basically, when I went in and I saw the the, the dominant cover style for, if you go on to any market research for any of the styles, you'll see a dominant cover style. If you go into, ya style books you will usually see 3d rendered characters and um, if, if you it's go to, not if it's, it's oh no, trash no, oh, yeah oh no 100 100 that's what yeah. i mean so for for indie it'll be the 3d rendered characters and you go to kind of the what i call the werewolf sex books um which to, don't even get me started look <laughs> i'm very happy for all the authors that are writing them and all the money they're taking in and because they are taking in a shit ton of money um But I I remember I put my first book out and I was held off the number one spot in classic fantasy because someone had purposely miscategorized um, a a shapeshifter werewolves erotica book. And they do it all the time. They'll stick it in classic fantasy, Arthurian fantasy. And I'm like, that is not. Like, come on. Like, write the book and it's a great book and I'm sure you're going to love it. And I have genuinely no disdain for the books or craft at all. Writing is writing. Um, But they miscategorized. I was like, you bastard. You just stole my number one spot. But... um, You'll see that the styles are covered everywhere. And actually, when you were pointing out that not in the trad book, this is what I'm actually getting to. So, when you go to Epic Fantasy, you will see that the indie one right now It's beautiful. They're all $2,000, $3,000 custom illustration covers. They are the top of them and they're amazing. Some of them get like you have Tommy Arnold covers, Chris McGrath covers. They are incredible. They spend way more money on indie book covers than trad do. And if that's the funny thing, you go back like five years ago, everyone was giving out about the quality of indie books. Indie books, shit on trad books for, no, they really, really do. Like you go and look at them now, the cost to create a lot of the trad covers is nothing. And you go to the indie ones and they are, they are top of the range illustrators at the top of their game, getting paid two, $3,000 to craft custom illustrated covers. And they are amazing. And, um, So when I went down and I saw all these and I saw what was going on, I saw the expectancy of release usually. I do think that the audience itself has a better tolerance, but the trad books were iconography. It was like Neil Gaiman, George R. Martin, they're all kind of iconography-based covers. So I purposely leaned that direction um, because I wanted to, to capture a blurred line between the audiences where they wouldn't know if I was indie, but I'm proudly indie, so like I will very happily talk about all my newsletters and mention everything. But I didn't want to blend in with the other indie covers, I wanted to blend with the trad cover. So, someone who because I realized that when you're indie, you're overexposed to the indie world and you believe that everybody knows what indie is, and people have a, a, a bias against indie. It's Like, and then you realize three years ago, I didn't even know indie publishing was a thing. Like. Not because I thought it couldn't happen, because I just didn't even think about it. So, 90% of readers, that's an obvious, obviously a very accurate statistic, 90% of readers are going on to Amazon. They don't give crap if you're into your trad. Like, the only thing they notice, and it's one thing that I say to anyone that talks to me about covers, uh, I say the one thing you need to make sure your cover is that everything else is professional. It doesn't matter what I think about it needs to be professional because that's what will separate a person's perception when they look on.
0: Cool. I, I have two things to say. One is I love in my soul how intentional you are about marketing, pitching, branding, building, Intensive. everything. And the, and the number two thing is that I love that you have talked about this because I'm just about to release another book called uh, The Anatomy of a Bestseller, which talks about deconstructing the best books in your genre at the craft level but also at the market yeah. level
1: no one no piece of advice i need it. i'm sorry i need to jump in no okay. one piece of advice and everyone goes everyone goes to me oh your book's been out for 12 months and has 2,000 reviews how is it possible i was like oh have you left a note at the back of your book explaining to people why you need a review and leaving a heartfelt message asking to leave a review They're like oh no why would i do that it's like what you want reviews but you haven't even asked for them and the first thing I did, just like you said, I went on to all the bestseller lists um, for all of my genres. I picked all the books with the top reviews. I went into them. I read them front to back, say six or seven different big books, and I analyzed all their back matter. And I went and saw, and the trend that I found between all the massive review number in the books, where they all had heartfelt messages at the back of the book explaining why reviews are important and asking to take two minutes to just leave a review And it's so understated because a lot of people don't realize, I know that when I was reading, when I knew nothing about the indie field, I never left a review because I just didn't think it's not because I didn't want to, it's because I didn't realize that it mattered. Mm. And that's, as soon as you said that, I just jumped into my head because like it was so important deconstructing the other leading indie books and not just their craft, but how they lay out their ebook, how they do their front matter, their back matter. It's so important. and So understated that, that little bit, like, You spend your whole life crafting all these books. The least you can do is make sure that they're packaged as incredibly as you can make them.
0: I completely agree, which is exactly I'm so why passionate I about
1: this stuff. <laughs> no,
0: no, no. I mean, I completely agree. That's why I wrote this book because this is something that I just do naturally, um, and didn't realise that other people didn't do it. So um, yeah. I kind of, yeah, I went from top to bottom and did like how to deconstruct craft, and then I went and looked at the market. And one of the one of the points that I talk about in the book mm. is about differentiating between Indian trad and why would you want to do that? It's not because them and us. It's not because one is better or the other it's about positioning and marketing and understanding what the fuck you're doing in a genre. And, and so I love you that you said that. In,
1: the best position you can be in is for your book to be indistinguishable from indie or trad in yep. order to, to garner to gain both audiences while also leveraging the fact that you're indie. Yep. It's a difficult position to be in, but, it but the best way to do it is on merit. Like, and that's what it is. You need to find a blur of that cover. You need to make sure that that cover is is able to get in between the two of them. But then to really earn it, it needs to be on merit. The content within needs to be top notch. And then when people read it, it doesn't matter. It just does not matter. But you need to get them in there
0: first. I completely agree. This has been one of, I'm not supposed to have favorites, but the it's longest. definitely been yes, no. <laughs> the longest ever with the most tangents. You win an award. No, I'm joking. This has <clears throat> honestly been one of my favorite discussions in a very, very long time. Um, however, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel.
1: This is it's actually one of the hardest questions I've ever, <laughs> i I'm, I'm not a rule breaker. I'm like, I am, and like I'm, I can, like, you know, I'll go out and I'll have fun, go crazy and have drinks, and I'm I'm a sarcastic dickhead 90% of the time, <laughs> but when it comes to general things, like, I don't even like returning food at a restaurant if it's, like, undercooked. I'm just like, <laughs> I'll just wait for it to cook itself, it's fine. Like, I'm not really a rule breaker at all, and I think it comes into maybe, like, an Irish upbringing, but then again, I know a lot of rule breakers in Ireland. Um, so it's kind of a, I was thinking, I was like, it's kind of a cheat answer, but, like, cause we're talking about books. It's kind of like what I said earlier when it comes to I, I, part of the things I do with my novellas and I love trying to try to improve myself, but also just trying to, I don't stray too far in my main books because, you know, I want to stick to certain things that will allow the books to be accessible to, to new readers and to read new readers and fantasy. And with my novellas, I just literally go fuck every rule that you have. Like, they're, like I said before, they're meant to be these short things. It's There are rules, like not rules, rules, but you know, kind of like the craft rules. You know, it's, it's a short book. You're meant to be a single area. It's meant to be a single kind of time frame, single character, because obviously when you extrapolate character to word count, there is, there's actually a mathematical formula that I saw a while ago. This is so sort of tangential, I guess. There's like a mathematical formula um, and it was actually done by um, Mary Robinette Cowell and um, on how each character will increase word counts and it's not linear. And the more you have it, you keep going up and stuff like that. So naturally what I did for my first novella, like I said, is instead of one character in one area, I did four characters shifting across a POV in a single battle that's moving all over this entire escape. And then in my second one, I took one character, two characters, building into three, four, five, spread it across 12 years, and an entire continent (laughs) in one novella and I was sitting there writing it and I was like I'm a fucking idiot like (laughs) as in what the fuck am I doing like I was sitting there going like this is fun because what I wanted to do I wanted to improve my craft and I go I haven't done big time jumps yet so I wanted I want to learn how to handle big time jumps so how do I learn to handle big time jumps? I use big time jumps. So I'm going in and trying to learn it and then put it to my beta readers and seeing what worked and what didn't work and then changing it and learning it. And well, fuck me, I was writing it. And I was like, I am the biggest idiot in the world. Like there, There's not that many rules to write novellas. And I actually did a checklist. I broke every single fucking one of them.
0: <laughs> oh, I love it. And these, that is-
1: these are rules written by people who live off novellas. <laughs> yeah
0: spectacular what a rebellion i literally love it see you are a dark horse you're a you're a little rebel really it's not Um, exactly
1: a cool type of rebellion
0: (laughs) hey we are all book nerds over here like it's definitely a cool rebellion um all right thank you so so much for your time today i genuinely mean it i have thoroughly enjoyed talking (laughs) to you so why it's been great um would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your books and anything else you want to add
1: yeah, like one of the easiest ways is just my website. Um, Ryan Cattle or Ryan Cahill, author.com. And uh, it should be everything there, all my links. Um, I found out recently, which was like a really cool moment for me, that when you type my name in, and my name is not a very distinctive name. You type my name in and I come up like first on Google and it has like um, one of those like things on the side has like my picture and my bio and stuff like that. And I was like, mom, mom, <laughs> Google me. Um, so basically the easiest thing, I can actually just say that now. Like, yeah, just Google, Google me. me. <laughs> like, because my Twitter, they like, got up. My Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, my website, my Goodreads page, they're all right there, all at the top. So, like, it's cool. I'm like, you know, don't find me on Twitter. Just Google me. I'm just kidding. Like, which sounds like a dickhead thing to say. and It is a dickhead thing to say, but it was a nice little, you know, it was cool.
0: It's not dickhead if it's true. And it is, therefore, it is not. Um, Okay, thank you so, so much for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black, you were listening to Ryan Cahill, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. So next week, instead of a guest, you're going to be joined by a surprise interviewer. And uh, they will be interviewing me all about the anatomy of prose, which is a little different. We don't often do this. So basically, you're going to get more of me chatting. I don't know if that's a great thing or a terrible thing. But anyway, that's what's happening. So join me uh, yeah, as we dive into the anatomy of a bestseller. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.